never mind, this is my first reading of it. <laughs> so let us look to what God will do as he speaks through me, through his word. And it's Psalm 85, page 588 of the Black Bibles in front of you. And let's start. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. God will indeed give us what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Otis, well done, Marty. Apologies for the uh, mix-up there. Uh, sorry, Glennis. I always get Glennis and Monty's name in my head because they both do ESL uh, and they're a dynamic duo. And I was talking to Monty earlier about ESL. Um, and let me just say, if anyone is not in ministry and you need a ministry to be part of, the ESL group is desperately needing some extra helpers on Monday. Uh, and they w Glennis would love to talk with you. Let me just read those first, uh, those two key verses, verse 6 and 7. Uh, which are at the heart of the message, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing Lord, uh, love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you we can be here today. And I pray, Lord, as we commence this commitment series, that you would so burn in our hearts by your Holy Spirit through the gospel, that we would come to great life in you, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us today and through these next five, six weeks to bring us to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can remember a time when you said to yourself, that's it, I've had enough. Um, that sense of discontent that you go, I just can't stand it anymore. Now, I don't know if you remember the great 
uh, cartoon character Popeye. Apparently, he's in the top 20 cartoon characters of all time. Who remembers Popeye? Now, yes, as we go through the day, I imagine that number will drop. Uh, but he was one of the great figures, wasn't he? And his uh, lovely sidekick, Olive Oil. And he used to say this phrase, this is all I can stands, I can stands no more. And it's not the best grammar, but it was classic of Popeye, who was the sailor man. And do you remember what would happen? He would get to that point of saying, I can stands it no more, and he would drink a can of spinach. I think parents love that show. It was a great con. <laughs> but he used to just get to that point of saying, I can stands it no more. All I can stand, I can stands no more. And it typically related to some issue that was happening, often to rescue olive oil. And he would drain his can of spinach and he'd be transformed into this Hulk-like character and he would go and do business and he'd always win. Now, spiritually, there's a similar state, state where you can say to yourself, that's all I can stands, I can stands no more. And it's been described as being in a state of what you could call godly discontent. Now, I was explaining to the staff meeting uh, and all the staff a couple of weeks ago about this series. And I came back from America and I'd had a series uh, in my head that we're going to do this term based on Ecclesiastes. And I said to Scott, look, Scott, I just don't want to do it. It's not that it's not going to be a good series. Ecclesiastes is a great book. We're actually going to do it next year. there's something that's really just burning in my heart that I really want to do, which is a series on revival. And I just returned from America. Many of you know I went over there and spoke at a church. And it's a church that I've got a lot of dear friends that has been historically at the center of a very significant move of God in the 60s and 70s called Calvary Chapel at Costa Mesa. And I said, I actually want to do a a, a series on revival. And we're starting that series today as a result. And Andrew Graham was... uh, very winsomely and wisely asking what kind of provoked that series and he said is it because of a sense of godly discontent and I said that's exactly it that's exactly how I feel a godly discontent with how things are and so I want to give you this series I want to bring this series to really just share what's on my heart in terms of where we're at as a church now to start us off And if I can put it this way, today I've got one goal that you might join me in having a godly discontent about the state of things spiritually and be praying for revival. I have a prayer meeting that runs Tuesday mornings. For five years I've been praying that God would visit us in a special way. And that we would see his blessings poured out upon us through the preaching of the gospel. And one of the scriptures that I often look to is this psalm, Psalm 85, that we've just had read. So if you've got it there, please open up page 588. Let me say the 2 Chronicles passage is a great passage. It's one of the famous verses on revival, but I'm preaching from Psalm 85, hence the change. I'm not sure what quite happened there, Glennis, but anyway... We're going to have a look at Psalm 85 and praying for revival. And I just want to go through it and then we're going to reflect on having a godly discontent. And I'm going to share my heart. And each week what we're going to do in this series is learn from history about the way God has come in periods of revival to bring great life through the preaching of the gospel. And today we're actually going to start with the Jesus People movement in Southern California in the 1960s 
that I've got a particular connection with. But let's look to start with at Psalm 85. Let me read from verse 1. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. And what you see here is the psalmist, he's a godly man. He's looking back on his past and the history of the people of God. And he says, Lord, you showed favour to your land. In other words, he's talking about the past. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And you can just see him recounting the great days when God was at work in the people of Israel. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath. You turned from your fierce anger. And there was favour. There was blessing upon us. And he's sitting there recounting what has happened, remembering those great days forgiven, experiencing his blessing. And I wonder if you often sit there and do that something similar, that you can look back on the past and the way God has worked powerfully and you give thanks for that. Um, I was thinking about this psalm and it got me thinking about my own life and periods in my own ministry that I've been a part of. And I've seen some incredible things and incredible periods of blessing from God when the gospel has come with great power. My brother-in-law was over last night and he and my wife were reminiscing about the early days of Christchurch St Ives, which has been for many years a very large church. It wasn't always like that. When Kat's father, who was the minister, came there, there was about 200 people attending on a Sunday. It was a sleepy church. Many people not converted who came on a Sunday. The youth ministry had to be shut by Dudley because it was the local venue for the drug dealers to operate out of. And Dudley just shut it down. 70 kids going, but the drug dealers having a field day. Drugs smoking on site. Within 10 years, it was the biggest youth ministry in the country under a youth minister named Jim DeMola, and just literally hundreds of kids came to Christ. I remember in my second year in uh, Fig Tree, my role was the night service and evangelism. And I remember I would go out and regularly go and visit people and share the gospel with a tool called EE. And I'm embarrassed to tell you this story. I remember I was so exhausted because so many people came to faith in 1995. And I was due to see another couple. I was taking someone out to train them. And I prayed this prayer, Lord, please no more. Now, I don't know if you can believe a minister praying that. I prayed it. Do you know what happened? Two more people came to faith that night. <laughs> and I went home and just laughed. I just thought, it's ridiculous. It's beyond me. I thought, well, that is God. He is totally beyond me. And it was really just a, a, a reflection of the tiredness I felt. And it was just this incredible period where literally we went out and we shared the gospel and people came to faith. And I think we had uh, 35 new members in church that year who'd come to faith. I remember one of them, um, he'd had a very troubled past. He'd uh, been on the wrong side of the law. And when I started to talk to him, I discovered it was because he was abused as a teenager by Catholic priests. And the local Catholic high school had been literally a den of all sorts of wickedness. Uh, the principal, when he was subpoenaed to court, committed suicide rather than face justice. 
this young man came to faith and I remember talking to him in a follow-up visit and I said how has coming to Christ and knowing him changed you and he said oh I've got rid of the gun now that's not the normal conversation I have when I go and visit someone pastorally I said what do you mean you got rid of the gun he said oh, I was going to kill the priest In Wollongong, one of the pedophile offenders was killed by one of his uh, abused victims. He said, now I just want justice and I'm going to the bishops to try and seek that, that this man might never practice as a priest again. Sadly, as we know the history of the church is, he was moved to another parish. But he'd been transformed. And that's the power of the gospel that we're talking about. No longer wanting to murder someone, now just wanting justice. And a totally appropriate response from Christ. And you may remember periods of past blessing where you've seen incredible things happen. Well, that's what this psalmist is reflecting on. The time in his life when, as you could say, you showed favour towards your land. You restored the fortunes of your people. But that's not where he is at this point in time. Have a look at verses 4 to 7. He says, and you can see him on his knees here, Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord. And grant us your salvation. In other words, the period they're currently in is not one of blessing, but it's one of being under the judgment and the discipline of God. They're experiencing His wrath, His displeasure towards them. Now, obviously, it's because they had sinned and they'd rebelled and they turned against God. But He's praying, In your mercy, Lord, please come and visit us and revive us. Now, the word revive is from a Hebrew word, hayah. I just love the sound of it. hi <laughs> And it simply means to make alive. And if you look up the dictionary in the Hebrew, it says uh, three things about this particular way it's written. It's to preserve alive. It's to give life, as in the creation of Adam. He was made alive from the dust. Or it's to quicken or to revive. In other words, it's to bring someone back to life. And when he's praying here that you would revive us, what he's asking is that you might bring us back to life, spiritually, so that we would know your blessing again. Why? So that we might rejoice in you. In other words, that they might know the favour of God which would lead to them wanting to praise him. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me just stop and ask the question, what is revival? It's a word that's often bandied around, it's often prayed by Christians, uh, and it's often used in all sorts of ways. Uh, let me say, without saying what it's not, because I haven't got all day here today, I could speak for a long time today on this topic. Um, in very simple terms, it's when the gospel comes alive. It's when the gospel is rediscovered. It's when the gospel has a powerful impact in bringing people to life in Christ. The death, the resurrection and the Holy Spirit 
causes us to know and experience the reality of the gospel and forgiveness of sins and walking with Christ powerfully. And Tim Keller puts it this way, um, and I put this in my weekly email, it's when nominal Christians get converted, you see the gospel comes with such power that people who previously may have subscribed to ethics, they may have professed some sort of intellectual belief, they may even be baptized church members, but they've never really been born again. They've never had their heart moved by the gospel. They've never surrendered their life to Christ. They don't know the reality of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and working in them. And they're born again. It's when sleepy Christians wake up. And you'll see Christians who literally are just asleep in the light. Mundane in their attendance. Dead in their worship. There is no sense of living relationship with Christ, though they would profess Him. And they begin to have a direct experience of God's love for them in Christ that fills them with assurance and confidence. And they're transformed. And as a result, people outside the church are drawn into the Christian community in remarkable numbers because, you see, the conversion of nominal members, the awakening of sleepy Christians causes such life that people want to find out what's happening and you see there's a boldness from the Holy Spirit that causes us to just want to go out and share with people about Jesus because he's changed my life and you'll see that in the story of the Jesus people the 60s which I'm going to come to and friends that's what I'm praying for that we might know the gospel coming to us powerfully that we would have a season of blessing such that people who are nominal are converted, people are sleepy, they're woken up, and this place is alive. And the psalmist has this hopeful expectation, you can see it in verse 8 to 13, that God will come and in fact do this. He says, I will listen to what God the Lord says, verse 8. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that his glory may dwell in our land and you you can see him ruminating on the promises of God and the teaching of God God has promised he will come to the humble he is near those who fear him and one of the great marks of periods of revival is this awesome sense that God is here and we tremble and we are so aware that God is holy and it captivates us, it humbles us, it brings us to our knees. There's, there's a real sense of repentance and tears over our broken lives. A great joy in knowing that in spite of our brokenness, we're completely forgiven and healed in Christ of our sins and our past and it's put behind us. And we know the joy of knowing Him in Christ and the Spirit ministers to us powerfully, this great reality. And there's this tangible sense of God with His people. And they see that's what He's praying. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. May we know the reality of God gloriously working here and His glory being present here. Love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And He finishes with these words. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares 
the way for his steps. Now, ultimately, this psalm is fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatest revival ever took place on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, the gospel was preached and literally thousands came to, came to Christ. And in that period, in that first century, the world was turned upside down by a church that was on fire who had experienced the blessing of salvation in the Lord Jesus, the power of the Spirit at work in their midst. But yet, as we'll see, even in that first century period, the church fell asleep, the church strayed. And you only have to read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation to see the reality of where the church was at the end of the first century. We're going to come to that on the last week. But this is what I learned from this psalm. Firstly, there are times that we come as the people of God that are moments of godly discontent. And you see, it's a psalm of godly discontent. The psalmist is not happy with where things are at. He can remember the past and he wants to see God at work in the future. He's discontent in a godly way for God to come and he prays, revive us. And the godly person senses this and calls upon God to make his people alive again. And friends, we need to have that same sense of godly discontent. One of the anaesthetizing things of being in one of the larger churches in the region, I think we're the second largest, C3 up the hill is bigger, is that we can think all is well. And numbers can anaesthetize us to the spiritual reality of our spiritual state. The fact that we may be large is not indicative of being healthy. And so the godly person will call upon God for the gospel to come in power to bring life, fresh revival life. And so we pray. And for the past few months, that's what I've been experiencing, a real sense of godly discontent, of wanting us to be alive in far greater ways than what we are. And I'll give you three reasons. Firstly, the state of our current culture in the city. I mean... Our country needs Christ. It's a very obvious thing. And I've been here 11 years and I've been struck by how quickly our culture has changed in that time. How secular just in the last 11 years we've become. The belief that God is real and should be the basis of how we order our world has long disappeared. People think the secular dream of life without God will bring happiness and joy, but it doesn't. Incredible rates of alcoholism. I think one of the highest rates of alcoholism and alcohol use is here in Australia on the northern beaches. Mental health issues, just if I can say prevalent. The incredible number of people suffering with anxiety and depression. And the secular dream of life without God does not deliver. And our city... Our northern beaches and Manly desperately needs a church that is on fire for Christ and is pointing the way to the life that is in him through the Lord Jesus. May the gospel come to this region with great power. I am not content with where we're at. And then I think about the state of the Sydney Anglican Church. Now, in saying what I'm about to say, I'm not wanting to criticize our church leaders. I mean, I'm one of them. But let me tell you some sobering stats about the Anglican Diocese in Sydney. 
And there are many fine things about it. At Synod this year, one of the motions is to address the decline of numbers of people going for ordination. In other words, there is less people wanting to stamp up and lead the church. Declining numbers of people at Theological College. It's not just more college, it's the Presbyterian College. I bumped into the uh, deputy principal for the Presbyterians. Same picture. All the colleges, declining numbers. A recent article came out in Eternity just this week about church attendance. Uh, the attendance rates for City Anglicans grew for a period, plateaued, and the writer said it appears to be in a gentle decline. A study was done recently down in Wollongong of youth ministry attendance numbers over the last 10 years. Significant decline. In other words, what is currently a gentle decline will become a tsunami when you lose the next generation. A study was done by one of our ministers in the diocese, not far from here, about attendance rate of Christians. What he found was what used to be uh, regular for committed Christians to come two out of three is now one out of two services a month. What was fascinating was, he said, and I'm not quite sure how he did this, in fact, I, I think I know, but he had what people self-reported in terms of their attendance rate against what their actual attendance rates were. Do you want to know the story? Have a guess. People think they come more and report and put down in writing they come more than actually what they do. In other words, there's a delusion, if I can use that word, about how often we think we come to church, which is endemic of a church that is asleep in the light. Well, that's the diocese. What about us at St. Matthew's? Let me say it's easy to rail against others, but what about ourselves? I think one of the hardest things in life is to confront the brutal truth of who I am. doesn't matter what issue it is. To actually come to grips with who you are is not easy. We are so talented at self-deception in all manner of things, myself included. One of the burdens of my job is what I know. And what I mean by that is I sometimes think I just know too much about too many people here. And it's necessary. I know about the many wonderful things that happen and there's many wonderful things that happen and the unseen acts of generosity and kindness and witness and Christian testimony and decision making that are just, you know, they, they warm my heart. But I also know about the brokenness. The dumb decisions. The things that you just go, it just shouldn't be like that. And let me just say, I take the responsibility of that knowledge very seriously. People's privacy is obviously of utmost importance to me. I just have a vault that I have to store stuff away in. And I rejoice at the way I see God at work here, but let me just say, there's a godly discontent for our church. And I pray that over these next five, six weeks, we would see God move in our hearts. 
so that he would set us on fire for the gospel. That we might be moved to tears about the state of our own soul, let alone the state of the lost and the impending judgment that will fall on those outside of Christ who will be lost eternally. I don't meet Christians from St. Matthew's who are often weeping for the lost and driven to love them and care for them and share Christ with them. Friends, this series is because I have a godly discontent for the gospel here. And may we see God move in a very powerful way over the next six weeks. Let me tell you about what happened in Southern California. And I have a special connection with this. One of the people who was converted by a man you're going to see on the screen, Lonnie Frisbee, who was the evangelist that was so key, is called Greg Laurie. I know Greg personally. All three of my kids went forward at a gospel rally with Greg Laurie, who was converted in the gospel awakening in Southern California. And I've got some very deep friendships, and I went and spoke at the church you're going to see on the screen in June. But back in the swinging 60s, um, it was a period of stability in North America, post-World War II, And in many ways, it was a beautiful time for many people. Middle-class respectability was alive and well, but yet there was a dissatisfaction that was growing with the political scene, with the war in Vietnam, and it produced a countercultural movement called the Swinging 60s and the hippie movement that became explosive in what was called Haight-Ashbury, a place in uh, San Francisco. And there was a, a period called the Summer of Love when the hippie movement just went crazy. Some may remember it. And it was a period fueled by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it was a rebellion against everything that middle-class, respectable America had thrown up to say, this is life. They said, no, it's not. And they went and explored the other side, thinking they would find nirvana and happiness. But the hippie countercultural movement contained uh, a decidedly dark side to it. It was very spiritual. Uh, all kinds of religions were kind of mixed up together. But there was numbers of problems that came. Overcrowding, crime, sexually transmitted diseases were rife, bad drug trips. Uh, LSD was legal at the time. Uh, they were all tripping on it, some of them literally 24-7. And every night, thousands of penniless young hippies would crash in San Francisco around the Haight-Ashbury area to space, just simply sleeping on the streets. They smelt, uh, they weren't loved, but they thought they were finding life. In the midst of it, the gospel came. A guy called Ted Wise was converted on a... LSD trip. He said later, well, I was always on LSD. It's better than coming to Christ when I was fornicating. <laughs> I mean, he, he was right out there. He turned up at this middle-class, respectable Baptist church. They didn't know what to do with him. He started to bring his friends. They didn't fit in. So they started a mission amongst the hippies. And literally, dozens and dozens came to faith. The movement moved down to an area... Uh, in Southern California, in LA, and particularly in the Anaheim region and Orange County in Costa Mesa. It was such a big movement, even Time magazine recognised it. That's the front cover of the Time magazine, I think, from 1971, the Jesus Revolution. 
at the peak of its kind of revival, what had happened was Chuck Smith, who was a middle-class, respectable um, preacher running a very small church in Costa Mesa, teamed up with a converted hippie named Lonnie Frisbee. What a name, Lonnie Frisbee. <laughs> and it was like middle-class America met Jesus. Because when you see him, I'll show a picture of him. He literally looks like Jesus. Lonnie was the evangelist and Chuck was the Bible teacher and they combined in this dynamic way. And there was this period where the hippies started to come to church, at Chuck's church, and he was fascinated to meet them. And they just, in this little church, put down new carpet. And the hippies think Nimbin, smelly, shoeless, dogs, living off scraps of food. They start coming to church with Bibles and they sit on the floor at the front. The elders of the church were so upset that the carpet was getting dirty. And I spoke to Chuck's daughter just in June about this. And I said, is it true that they wanted to stop the hippies coming? He said, yes, they put a sign out the front. You can't come into church unless you've got shoes on. Chuck was outraged and said, we've got a simple solution to your problem. Let's just rip the carpet up. Let them come. That's a picture when they moved out of this little church and they went into a tent and they were going to build. And over nine months, they had to change the building design three times because they grew so quickly. One of my friends who was converted in the movement was here last Sunday at Jazz Church. I couldn't believe it. Ricky Ryan, what are you doing here? Surf bum converted from San Diego. Came to faith as a young surf punk. Looked all the surf dude, nothing middle class respectable about him. Turned up. He got told when he got converted, read your Bible, pray, go to church and tell people about Jesus. He said, okay, I'll do that. First Sunday, he turns up at church, middle class respectable church. Guess what they did to him? They wouldn't let him in. He goes, I've got a Bible. Good news for modern man. <laughs> okay, you can come in. They put two minders on either side of him. Didn't go back to that place. Next place, Episcopalians, us. He said it was near the surf break. He said, surely they're going to be better off because they're near the surfers. They just kicked him out. Third church welcomed him in, but they said to him on the second week when he came back, oh, this is what you wear now. They gave him shoes, long pants, collared shirt. He thought, dude, what's happening here, man? I just want to follow Jesus. He ended up planting a church over in Maui, Hawaii, Santa Barbara. You see, the problem was the middle-class, respectable church had lost sight of the gospel. And they confused it for religion. And into that fertile soil where people were disillusioned with life, the gospel came to life. And people from all backgrounds came. And Cheryl, who's the daughter of uh, Chuck Smith, she emailed me this week. She said, you know, every couple of months they'd have baptisms down at Newport Boat Harbour. Pirate Cove was where they ended up. That's one of the pictures. Literally hundreds would get baptised. There's another one. There's Chuck, respectable middle-class preacher on the left. Lonnie Frisbee, straight out of the Jesus movement on the right. Bible teacher and evangelist. It was a fertile time. And Cheryl said to me, you know, this is how you would describe what took place. She said there was just this atmosphere of grace. It didn't matter where you were from, who you were, what your background, what your mistakes were, anyone could come because God loved them. 
And we just welcomed them in. And they came to faith in Jesus and started following it. And she said this in, in an email, what I mean by great grace is that all sorts of people from all sorts of levels of society and backgrounds, instead of judging or holding the past against anyone, it was a platform to talk about how great God's delivering power and redemption is and was. The testimonies of how God delivered and what He delivered from were glorious. No one was identified by the sin of their past, but rather from God's great deliverance from that past. Drugs, drunkenness, crime, prostitution, Satanism and the such, they all got delivered from it. And they came and they grew and they went out and a movement was born. She said, our gardener, Link, who his, her dad, the senior pastor, Chuck Smith, had hired from the church, came to Christ having previously been an armed robber. Sadly, his past caught up with him and he went back to prison. But he was a changed man. We never thought of Link as an armed robber, but as one of the kindest, dearest Christian men with a penchant for nature who'd been completely changed. That was the atmosphere of the Jesus People movement. Great grace. Which takes me back to this verse. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I want us to stop and pray. A couple of people have asked me, what are you hoping will happen as a result of the next five, six weeks? This is what I wrote down. First, that the church will develop a hunger and expectation for God to be at work powerfully over these next five weeks to bring revival and renewal here through the preaching of the gospel. If the one thing that happens today is that you leave here with a godly discontent about the way things are, you'll put a smile on my face. May we have a passion to see God work powerfully to turn lives around. I pray that secondly, there'll be an increase in prayer. If you can come and join me at seven in the morning on Tuesdays, you're very welcome. You might find it hard to get a word in, but come along anyway. And the three prayer meetings coming up, 23rd, 30th of October and 6th of November. But thirdly, most importantly, I pray that there would be a deep sense of honesty about our spiritual state under God. And that we will do deep business with the Lord Jesus in the course of these next five, six weeks. And lastly, that we would say as a church in December that God has visited us in a powerful way to bring us to a new life in Christ. Let us stop and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us that you would put within us a godly discontent for ourselves, for our church, for our nation, for our area, that we might have a deep, deep desire for you to do a deep work in us, to bring us to life in Christ. Father, give us a hunger and an expectation for you to be at work here powerfully. I pray we would see a great increase in prayer, a deep honesty about who we are before you and our spiritual state, that we both individually and corporately would be renewed and revived in our faith and walk with Christ such that we would say we are alive like we've never been. 
and that we will look back and say you visited us in a special way this term, this month. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song which is a very simple song. It just says, Lord, I need you. And look, let me just say at the end of the service, if you would like prayer for anything that God has been speaking to you today, please do come down the front. We'd love to pray for you. This is also the collection song for the work of ministry. If you've got your connect cards there, please put them in. If you've got your offerings that you don't give electronically, please do place them in the basket. But let's cry out to God with a godly disconnect. Please stand.